Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. If you have one of the Bibles from the welcome table, uh, we'll be on page 905 today. We're going to finish up Mark's gospel, like I said. Uh, We're going to start in verse 40 of chapter 15, and we're going to end on verse 8 of chapter 16. Now, if you're looking down in your Bible, you're probably going right now, but my Bible goes from verse 9 to 20. It ends on chapter, or or on verse 20. How come we're not going to cover those? Okay. The short answer is that several of the earliest original manuscripts of Mark's gospel end at verse 8. And and the Greek wording and the writing style of verses 9 through 20 are different from the rest of Mark's gospel. And so most scholars would agree that verses 9 through 20 are not original to Mark, but are are a, a longer ending that was added later by scribes who made Uh, copies like they didn't have you know um, word processing things there where they could just print out multiple copies they didn't have uh, copy machines where they could just slap it on this thing and scan it and go they had to hand write it okay and and in doing that um, some scribes took liberty and added things or 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 made some mistakes here and there Um, and, and so it's believed that that a scribe added this ending to mark's gospel uh, and we'll see why, because we'll feel like this makes way more sense than, than the way Mark ends it. Um, but that introduces us to a topic called textual criticism, okay? Um, sounds kind of nerdy. Um, it is a little bit, I'm not going to lie. But um, contrary to the way that this name sounds, it, it's, it's a practice that actually helps us maintain, or, or that helps maintain both the integrity and the reliability of Scripture. So in other words, you can trust the Bible that you're holding, even though it has verses 9 through 20 in there, it's going to have those in brackets, okay? Um, And that's largely due to the field of textual criticism. So again, since we won't be meeting in person next Sunday, this is what we're going to sort of tap into together um, and and use our time to dig a little deeper into into this concept of textual criticism and see why it makes the most sense that Mark's gospel ends at verse 8 in chapter 16 instead of verses 9 through 20. I promise we won't make the discussion itself super nerdy, um, but if you're, if you're wondering why, this is really helpful because you'll see throughout your New Testament especially, you'll see, um, you'll see textual notes depending on your Bible uh, that, that, that give uh, notes that say, that, that say uh, early manuscripts have this or, or uh, some manuscripts say this, Okay. All of that is in this realm of textual criticism. None of that lowers the authority of Scripture. It enhances the reliability of it, and we need to understand why. So I'm looking forward to that discussion next week. I hope you are too. And, um, and hopefully by the time we're done, we'll, we'll all be even more confident that God's Word is faithful and true. Amen? So we're going to end on verse uh, 8 of chapter 16 today, and it's going to feel weird okay it's going to feel disappointing it's going to it's it's not going to end the way that we want it to end and i believe that's by design i believe that mark did it on purpose he never allows his readers if if you've uh uh, if you've been paying attention to to his gospel for these for these past 38 weeks okay Or, or however long it's been over a year since we've really been in it but um by now, I think we understand that, that he never allows his readers simply to just read, right? To just read this gospel and, 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 and 
and leave it at that. He always challenges the reader to follow the Christ that they read about, right? And we remember, he's, 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 um, he's written this gospel to uh, some, some Christians in Rome in the early church who are undergoing persecution. They need more than just a good story. They need a foundation for, for their life as they go into increasing persecution from Rome. They need to be challenged to follow Jesus in the midst of it. So, By the end of the passage today, we will be faced with a question. What will we do with the good news that we have read? Okay? And so, um, I know we just prayed, and if you're new here, um, we need to pray. We like to pray. And and I want to pray this morning as we get ready to read through the rest of Mark and that God would open our eyes to his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is faithful and true. We thank you that your spirit guides us, leads us, directs us into all truth. And we thank you that your word and your spirit work together to transform our hearts into the likeness of Jesus. So this morning as we behold our risen Savior, would you help us to live as resurrected people who are held in him perfectly and eternally And for those in here that may not know you, I pray that today they would be absolutely convinced that the good news is indeed good news and that Jesus has risen and that they would see their need for this Savior who is alive. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're going to make an argument for the validity of something, right, especially in a courtroom, you're going to want both hard evidence Um, and you're going to want confirmation from credible people. You want reliable witness and reliable evidence, right? Now, we've already seen from Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin that the Jews had this custom of trying to establish the testimony of two witnesses to confirm uh, the the reliability of what they were saying. Before they made a judgment, they needed two witnesses to to say the same thing. And in the first century... uh, a woman's testimony was not usually considered credible in a Jewish court. Now, the validity of the resurrection is the most important argument that we can make as believers, as Christians. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ hasn't been raised, then our faith is, worth, is worthless and we are still dead in our sins. We have no hope, right? So why then would Mark end his gospel by using the eyewitness testimony of three women to prove that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the grave. Well, first of all, it's because in God's sovereign and divine providence, these women really were actually the first ones to see the empty tomb. And second of all, it's precisely because women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb that it gives more credibility to the claim of Jesus' resurrection and not Less, if Jesus' disciples were making this story up, they would have put men at the tomb and not women because of the way the culture was, since Jews rarely accepted the eyewitness testimony of women. And this morning, we're going to see that women played a vital role in Jesus' earthly ministry and in solidifying the evidence that the resurrection actually happened. These women were witnesses to the, to the uh, crucifixion, they were witnesses to the burial, and they were witnesses to the empty tomb. But 
as we all know by now, Mark has this thing he likes to do where he takes two stories and he opens one up and he sticks another one in the middle as a sandwich and, and, and brings these two together so that, uh, so that the, the one in the middle actually helps uh, bring greater meaning to both, right? And so in his final literary sandwich, we're going to see that these women were imperfect disciples of Jesus just like the men were. And we're going to be left with a view of our own imperfect discipleship as we are challenged then to give testimony to the validity of the risen Christ. So, let's see what Mark has to say. Mark chapter 15, verse 40 and 41. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and, Sal- and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. Up until now, there hasn't been much mention or, or, or focus of, uh, of the women who have been following Jesus along with the 12 men that he had chosen back in, in chapter 3. Now, these women weren't simply following the men who were following Jesus. It's clear here that they were following Jesus himself. You'll notice that, that these 12 disciples that Jesus called, they don't show up here at all, except for one verse, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. But these women are here. If they were following those men and not Jesus himself, they would have abandoned him like all the others did once he was put on the cross. John's, John's gospel tells us that John himself, the disciple, son of Zebedee, uh, was standing there as a witness to the crucifixion, but even he fled in the garden of, Geth- of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. Now, these women are also witnessing the the crucifixion of our Savior, but Mark says they're watching from a distance. Psalm 38, 11 says, My loved ones and my friends stand back from my affliction, and my relatives stand at a distance. More scriptures being fulfilled here as our suffering servant experiences the pain of the suffering sinner in Psalm 38 on our behalf. Now, Mark gives the names of these three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. Now, most of us are probably familiar, at least in in part, uh, with Mary Magdalene, even though this is the first time Mark mentions her in his gospel. Luke tells us that Jesus had had cast seven demons out of her, um, and and there's a common misperception that she was an adulteress or, or a prostitute, but none of the four gospels actually make that claim about her. They do all four, however, reveal that Mary Magdalene was one of the first witnesses, eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. And they credit her with that. Now there's some debate on, on the identity of Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph. Um, and, and we won't get into all of that, but, but it does seem most likely that, that this is Jesus' mother and his brothers since they were already mentioned by name back in chapter 6. And as we know, Mark rarely uses specific names of people unless they're important to the storyline. And then Matthew's gospel tells us that Salome is the mother of James and John who were fishing with their father Zebedee on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus called them to follow him in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel. So all of these women are are actual women. They're they're historical. They're, They're real people, okay? It's important that we understand that. They're not made up. 
Mark says that these three women followed Jesus in Galilee and and they took care of him and that many other women along with these three had come up with Jesus to Jerusalem. I found uh, uh, one commentator, I found what he said about them to be helpful. He said, these and many other women have done what Mark throughout his gospel has defined as discipleship, following and serving Jesus. Only angels and women are said to have ministered to Jesus in Mark. I think it's clear here that even though Mark hasn't given much emphasis to women in his gospel, every time he does mention them, he emphasizes that the call to discipleship is not just for men. Man or woman, adult or child, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, everyone who wants to follow after Jesus must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. That's the call. Now, these women have followed Jesus to Jerusalem, but now they're watching his crucifixion from a distance, just like Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard where he denied Jesus three times. And Mark uses similar language here in the wording to describe it. So it would seem as though these women are in danger of failing in their faithfulness to Jesus as Peter did. And it's in this lingering thought that Mark inserts the middle part of the story of the sandwich in verse 42. When it was already evening because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. And after he had bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen And then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. So now it's Friday evening. It's the day of preparation. Now the day of preparation can reference the day before the beginning of a festival, like like the Passover, which they are observing. But Mark tells his readers, his his Gentile, his Roman readers here, um, that, that he's referring to the time of preparation before the weekly Sabbath. So it's Friday is the day of preparation, okay? Uh, And that begins on sundown on Friday and ends at sundown on Saturday, That the the weekly Sabbath does. And so the sun hasn't quite gone down yet, but it's coming soon. It's late in the afternoon. And and the book of Deuteronomy instructs the Jews that even criminals who are executed and hung on a tree deserve to be taken down and buried on the same day that they died. But no work can be done on the Sabbath. So sundown is coming. And, 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 and they won't be able to bury him once sundown comes. And so there isn't much time left for them to do it. So after reading that the women have been following Jesus and taking care of him since Galilee, we would expect them to be the ones who, who take his body down and bury it. But that's not the case, right? This is the first time that we hear of Joseph of Arimathea in Mark's gospel. Mark tells us that Joseph is a, is a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking for the kingdom of God. And here we learn for the first time that not every member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the high court, not every member of them agreed to condemn Jesus to death. And in John's gospel, he adds that the Pharisee named Nicodemus was also there assisting Joseph to care for Jesus' body. All the religious leaders, we need to understand this, all of the, all of the, the uppity-ups, we're looking forward to the kingdom of God. 
they were all looking and waiting for the Messiah, right? But it's clear here that Joseph actually believed that Jesus was going to be the one to establish that kingdom. He was looking forward to the kingdom of God, not in the same way that the other religious leaders were. But he was looking forward in Jesus. And so his request for the body in verse 43, Mark says, is bold. It's bold for two reasons. First, Joseph is a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. This means that he's reputable. This means that he's powerful. This means that he's honored and revered among them, among the religious leaders. And even though the book of Deuteronomy allowed for the respectful burial of criminals who were condemned, Joseph's actions, his wanting to come and take Jesus' body down and bury it, these actions would put him at odds with the Sanhedrin who condemned Jesus as a blasphemer. He's risking his place of prominence among the religious leaders by doing this. And the second reason has to do with Pilate. Pilate is the most powerful man in Jerusalem at this moment. He is the highest ranking Roman official in Judea. And Roman custom was to leave bodies of condemned criminals on the cross while they decayed in order to serve as a warning to others who may feel compelled to uh, rebel against Rome. So by asking for Jesus' body, Joseph runs the risk of appearing critical of Pilate for for executing Jesus as a criminal. The very fact that he wants to bring Jesus down off the cross shows that he doesn't agree with Pilate's decision. Now Joseph's request comes at great, great risk to himself, but at great devotion to his Lord. Mark also uses this section to give convincing evidence that Jesus actually died. We need to understand that the resurrection is historical. It's true. There's there's solid evidence of it. And we're going to see a a lot of that here in in this section. Because we're going to see evidence of Jesus' actual death. Again, if he were making this up, if Mark was making this up, he wouldn't have a a prominent member of the Sanhedrin be the one who takes Jesus' body down off the cross and and be the one to give him a proper burial. There's no reason for Joseph to do this unless Jesus really is who he said he is and he really did what he said he would do. And he said he would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and be killed and rise on the third day. So when Joseph takes Pilate or asks Pilate for Jesus' body, Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus is already dead. Why? Usually crucifixion takes two to three days for a person to die as they're hanging there on the, on, on the cross. It doesn't happen after merely a few hours. Now we understand the agony that Jesus went through in, in about six hours That's more than any of us could handle. But Pilate is surprised because he thinks, typically, he shouldn't be dead for another couple days. And so he checks, Pilate checks with the centurion to see if Jesus really is already dead. This is the centurion that we read about, presumably in uh, verse 39 of chapter 15. He's seen probably hundreds of crucifixions. He can credibly affirm that Jesus is in fact dead, and he does so here, right? Right? In fact, among the hundreds of thousands of crucifixions that the Romans carried out during their political reign, there's not a single record of anyone who's ever survived it. Not one. 
Jesus really died. He was really dead. But Pilate's surprise at the timing of Jesus' death also affirms that Jesus laid down his own life when and how he wanted to. So here we see both the reality of Jesus' death and the reality of redemption through the one who is both 100% man and 100% God. Mark also deliberately uses the term corpse in verse 45. It's like, we know Mark by now. He, he doesn't mince his words, right? He says corpse in verse 45 to emphasize that Pilate is giving Joseph possession of Jesus' lifeless body. He's dead. And again, typically the Romans left the corpses on the crosses, but occasionally they would allow family members uh, the ability to remove the corpse and bury it if requested, if they requested to do so. So it's unusual for Pilate to give the corpse then to, to Joseph, who's not a member of Jesus' family. And in an ironic use of language, Mark says in verse 46 that Joseph took Jesus down. Does that phrase sound familiar? While Jesus hung on the cross, the chief priests mocked him among themselves, and they said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And other people mocked him, saying the same thing. If you are the Messiah, come down. Take yourself down. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. Now one of the chief religious leaders who did see and believe is taking the Messiah the king of Israel, down from the cross and not putting him on the throne, but putting him in a tomb. And in doing so, he's fulfilling yet another passage of scripture that confirms that Jesus really is the Messiah who really will save. Isaiah 53, 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had, had not spoken deceitfully. Joseph wrapped Jesus in fine linen cloth, Mark says. Only a rich man could afford that kind of linen. And only the wealthy could afford a tomb cut out of the rock with a disc-shaped stone that could be rolled in front of the entrance. Jesus was truly with a rich man at his death because he truly had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. He really did say he was going to die, and he really did die. It's clear here through what Mark is saying. All of the evidence that Mark gives of Jesus' death here debunks one of the myths that Jesus merely fainted on the cross and then was revived by the cool temperatures in the tomb. He didn't save himself so that he could truly save others. Three ranking officials have now given confirming testimony that Jesus is really dead. Joseph, Pilate, and the centurion, a Jew and two Gentiles. And according to John's gospel, Nicodemus affirmed it as well. But two members of the Sanhedrin and two Romans are not who you would want as witnesses of Jesus' death if you were making this story up. Do you see the pattern here? No one in Jesus' day would believe you if you said that. And, and remember, Mark has already named three women as witnesses to the crucifixion. And now he brings two of them back to the scene in verse 47 in order to finish up the literary sandwich. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were watching where he was laid. 
Mark doesn't tell us where uh, Salome is at this point, but notice who he hasn't mentioned at all so far in this passage. I'll give you a hint. There's 12 of them. All of the men he called and, and to follow him, all of the disciples that he chose, none of them are here. None of them are witness to this. None of them are at Jesus' tomb. Only two Pharisees burying Jesus and two women watching where he was laid. Again, not the first choice of witnesses you'd include if you're a first century Jew fabricating this story. This is so out of the ordinary that it only makes sense if it's actually true. And we'll see in a minute why it's important that the two Marys were watching where Jesus was laid. Let's read on. Chapter 16. Verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so they could go and, and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for, from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Now, the Sabbath is over at sundown on Saturday night. It's too late and too dark for these women to go to the tomb, but at least now they can go and buy spices and be ready to go to the tomb first thing in the morning, Sunday morning, right? Now, Jews didn't practice embalming like Egyptians did. They didn't practice embalming like we do. The spices that these women bought weren't for preserving the body. They were fragrant oils used to cover up the stench of decay as an act of affection for the one who passed away. But these women won't need these spices, will they? They'll never get to use them. Verse 2 says that they went to the tomb very early on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, right at sunrise. And this is why verse 47 is necessary. In chapter 15, this is why verse 47 is important. One argument that people have made in attempting to debunk the reality of the resurrection is that the women went to the wrong tomb. That they got the wrong direction. But they were watching where he was laid before the sun went down, and they went back to that same tomb when the sun came up. These women know what tomb Jesus is in. but they're concerned about how they're going to get into the tomb once they get there. And this brings even more validity to the resurrection. In verse 4, Mark goes out of his way to note that the stone was very large, right? Most likely, it, 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 it had been rolled down an incline. It's a big disc-shaped stone rolled down an incline and into a groove that seals it right in front of the entrance of the tomb. Now, if it had been the 12 disciples that had gone to the tomb first, it might be conceivable that together they'd be strong enough to roll that stone out of the groove and back up the incline and take Jesus' body out in order to claim that he had risen. But there's no chance that these three women are going to be able to roll that stone away, and they readily admit it in verse 3. They're concerned. Who's going to roll this away for us? They need someone else to do it, and someone else did it. Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. This is really good news. This is important information. Look at verse 5. 
When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they put him. In verse 5, Mark says that the women entered the tomb and they found a young man inside. The language that he uses here of the man being dressed in a white robe gives this sense that the young man is a heavenly being. Similar in appearance to to Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain back in chapter 9. And in Matthew's gospel, he confirms that this is an angel. It's also confirmed by the women's reaction. Mark says they were alarmed. The sense here is that they're overwhelmed with with fear and wonder. They're overwhelmed. They're amazed and distressed at the same time. It's characteristic uh, response found all throughout the Bible when a human being has an encounter with a divine being. And it's clear that this young man is no mere human being. It's clear that something divine has happened. It's clear that God himself has rolled away the stone. This angel's not there to bring terror to these women. He's there to bring hope. He's a messenger with good news, right? And verse 6 is the key to, to the reality of it all. He says, don't be alarmed. Hold on. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they put him. And in those few statements, the angel confirms that the women are at the right tomb and they're looking for the right man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. It's the same man that they followed and served in Galilee. The angel also confirms that Jesus was, in fact, crucified and that he was, in fact, laid in that specific tomb. The women watched where Jesus was laid, and now the angel invites them again to say, look, come see what you saw before, only he's not there. Look in the same place. Come see the place where they put him. And the most glorious statement of all confirms what Jesus has been saying all along. Let's just be reminded of it for a minute. Mark 8, 31 and 32. Then Jesus began to teach them, that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Mark 9, 31 and 32, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he's killed, after he's killed, he will rise three days later. Response from the disciples, but they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Mark 10, 32 through 34, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the 12 aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. You see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. Now, on the third day, in the empty tomb, the angel confirms that good news was seven words. 
He has risen. He is not here. And in verse 7, we see the heart of Christ and the very reason why he had to suffer and die and rise again. He did it to redeem and to restore his people even after they have failed him miserably. Back in chapter 14, Jesus said to the 11, minus Judas, because he was on his way to betray Jesus in the garden. He says, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. That's Mark 14, 27 and 28. And after, he said all, and after he said that, all of them, do you remember? They pledged their allegiance to Jesus. They said they would die with, with him if necessary. And Peter said that if all the others would fall away, he would not. But what happened? The mob comes. Jesus is arrested in the garden. Everyone flees. And then Peter denies Jesus three times in the courtyard of the high priest. Now, Jesus could have left them to fend for themselves after he rose from the grave. He could have just said, told you guys, you had your chance. You're on your own. Good luck. But the good shepherd died and rose again in order to gather his sheep to himself. So the angel says to the women, but go, tell his disciples, and Peter. I love that. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. He is risen, just as he said he would. All the things Jesus has been saying have come true. Not one single lie. Not one single falsehood. He is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do. It's these very disciples, the ones who have failed Jesus, the ones who have denied him, who need to see him resurrected and experience the hope and the reality of forgiveness and restoration. He had called them to follow him, and he won't go back on his word. He suffered, and he died, and he rose from the grave, just like he said he would. And he'll meet them in Galilee, just like he said he would. And he'll make them fishers of men just like he said he would. So what do you think these women will do? These women who have followed Jesus and taken care of him since Galilee, they're going to run right out and find the disciples and tell them what they've seen, right? Verse 8. They went out, ran from the tomb, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. The end. Let's pray. No, we have more to go. You know how Mark has described these women since verse 40 of chapter 15? Let's just think through this for a second. They were watching Jesus' crucifixion from a distance. They didn't ask Pilate for Jesus' body, and they stood back while and watched while Jesus or while Joseph laid Jesus in the tomb. They bought spices because they had resigned themselves to the belief that Jesus' body was going to remain in the tomb and see decay. They were worried that they wouldn't be able to get the stone rolled away. 
And they were alarmed when they saw the angel. It's no wonder that they ran from the tomb because of trembling and astonishment uh, overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to no one because they were afraid. We, we, we should see this coming. They ran from the tomb in the same way Peter and the others ran from the garden. From the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus commanded the demons to be silent when they revealed who he was. After he cleansed the man with leprosy at the end of chapter 1, Jesus sternly warned him. Do you remember what he said? He sent him away and he told him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Does that phrase sound familiar? After his transfiguration in chapter 9, Jesus Jesus ordered Peter, James, and John to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There's a timeline on the silence here, right? He silenced all those people and all those demons because he had come to inaugurate the kingdom of God through his suffering, through his death, and through his resurrection, but he knew no one would understand that. They were expecting the Messiah to come and establish an earthly throne in Jerusalem and overthrow Rome for good. And now the risen king has conquered, not Rome, but sin and death itself. He's alive. The tomb is empty. The Savior has risen, and there's no reason to keep silent now anymore. But now at the command of the angel to go and tell, these women said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. And we, as the readers, are left disappointed right? This can't really be how Mark ends his gospel, can it? We want verses 9 through 20 to be there. That's a happier ending. In his final literary sandwich, Mark pits the fear and immobility of the women against the bold actions of Joseph to show his readers that true discipleship requires courageous action in the midst of fear. If we're going to be his disciples, if we're going to follow Jesus, then we truly must deny ourselves to take up our cross and to follow him. Now, we need to understand this. Throughout the entire gospel, Mark hasn't been comparing disciples of Jesus to show who has been more faithful than the others. He's been showing us how Jesus is always, always, always faithful to those whom he calls to follow him, even When they fail him. Courage to act doesn't come from our confidence in ourselves. We are not strong. Courage to act comes from confidence in Christ alone. Do you remember the first words of Mark in his gospel? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then he quotes from the prophets uh, Malachi and Isaiah. He says, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. Voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. The way was prepared, and the Lord has come. And he suffered, and he died, and he rose from the dead, just as he said he would. And now the angel in the empty tomb of our risen Lord commissions these women with a call that echoes Isaiah 40, verse 9. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. But Mark's gospel doesn't end with a raised voice. 
and a proclamation. It ends with fear and silence. We know ultimately that these women will go tell the others. The other gospel accounts reveal that. But Mark doesn't leave us with that resolution to the story. And we need to understand what Mark is doing and and how he's telling it here. He leaves us with what feels like an abrupt and disappointing end to the climax of, of the whole thing. But that's the point. That's the whole idea because it leaves us with this lingering question. If they won't go and tell, then who will? And we need to be able to answer that question with, I will. We will. The beginning of Mark's gospel was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we need to understand this. The ending of Mark's gospel is not the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just because Mark's gospel ends with bad news doesn't mean that there's no more good news. It just means that we need to be courageous enough to go and tell it to others. As followers of the risen Christ, we've been commissioned to go, tell, as the angel says, others of the good news of salvation from sin and death through Christ's substitutionary death and resurrection, Jesus in in my place. We are now heralds of this gospel of Jesus Christ, and now we are faced with a choice to open our mouths and share it with others or to say nothing to anyone. We need to open our mouths, and we need to speak. It doesn't mean we'll never experience fear as we do so, but it does mean that we must trust the Lord and His Word to be faithful to us in spite of our fear. And we need to trust his spirit to empower us to be faithful to him when we're afraid. I wonder sometimes if we remain silent because we're no longer astonished by the truth of the resurrection. We've heard this story so many times that that's exactly what it feels like, a story. That's good, but functionally we behave in ways where it feels like we don't actually believe it. This is why we need Mark's gospel. This is why we need Matthew's gospel. This is why we need Luke's gospel and John's gospel. This is why we need the New Testament and the Old Testament. This is why we need the word of God to remind us of the definitive reality of the resurrection and to renew our awe of the risen king. And we need it to be reminded that Christ used imperfect disciples then and he'll continue to use imperfect disciples now to carry the message of the gospel to others because faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's the gospel that's the power of God for salvation for those who believe because through the gospel they encounter the risen Christ himself. So, The question has to be asked this morning, do you believe this gospel? Have you heard this good news? Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you haven't been fully convinced that it's true. Jesus is the son of God who came as a man to suffer and die on the cross in the place of sinners and to rise from the grave so that we can be reconciled to God. Do you know this? Do you believe this? Are you a sinner in need of a savior? Then then hear these words of Mark. Hear this good news of the gospel. 
see the word of the Lord and be convinced. The risen Jesus is that Savior. And only he will be that Savior. And he will forever be that Savior. I think it's safe to say that 2020 has had its share of bad news, right? I think Mark's original readers could say the same thing as they've experienced growing persecution from their, uh, for their faith in Rome, but the gospel of Jesus Christ that Mark wrote down for them is the same gospel of Jesus Christ that we now read. It's the same gospel that was good news for them. It's the same gospel that's good news for us. Are you focused on the good news or the bad news? Which, which news consumes you right now? Which news are you sharing with others? Surely, God has not placed you where you live in this time, in this moment in history, to leave you in fear and despair. Surely, God has not established Redeemer Community Church in Minunk, Illinois, for us to remain silent and tell no one. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came as the suffering servant king to save sinners and bring them into his kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. This is the summary of Mark's gospel. This is the summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has risen. It's definitive. And he's gone ahead of you and me to the place where he will gather us finally and forever. And he's left us here with his spirit and his word and his church to enable us as imperfect disciples to carry out his perfect plan of redemption through the proclamation of this gospel. If you believe that, don't remain sidelined and silent by fear, but go tell tell others the good news of the risen king so that many more will hear and believe amen would you pray with me jesus we thank you that we can pray to you the one who we just read about the one who is not in the tomb but is seated right now at the right hand of the father interceding on our behalf preparing for your return empowering your people to tell others the good news. Lord, we confess that we need help. We confess that it's our tendency to linger in the bad news. We confess that it's our tendency to uh, turn away in fear and remain silent when you've called us to speak. We ask you to forgive us for that and we ask you to Renew our awe of our risen Savior. We ask that you, God, would help us, even this week as we approach Thanksgiving, to be able to truly give thanks for the resurrection, to truly give thanks for your life and death, the atoning sacrifice that you have given on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that you would give us many opportunities to open our mouths and share this good news with others, and that you would give us the courage, even in the midst of fear, to speak, so that many would hear 
many would believe and you would gather more to yourself. We thank you that it's not our power that does this, but it's the power of the God who raises the dead. We ask all this and pray all this and agree all this in the mighty name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.